0: just that realization of you know I'm practicing living in a place which yeah the uh, cultural culture and cultural norms and um you know the things that surround and underpin your medical practice are so far beyond anything I'd considered um was it was a real shock and I you know I think anyone who's worked in, in similar places will will have some of those cases again and again.
1: Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Fionn Davis, emergency medicine and expedition doctor and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Marcus Stevens, one of our new podcast hosts. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Fionn. Great to be here.
1: Fantastic. So at the time of recording, the UK is in the last throes of a summer heatwave and I'm cooking in my very hot study. Uh, But wherever you are today, I'm glad we're keeping you company. Hope you are somewhere more exciting more adventurous getting outside and enjoying the nice weather and getting outdoors. So um, we're doing this episode to introduce Marcus as one of our new podcast hosts because he's done some pretty cool stuff himself and it's going to be fascinating to talk to him about some of his experiences and his background. So a little bit about him. Um, Marcus is an urgent care general practitioner and physician doctor. He's spent a number of years working in West Africa where he, he actually drove there uh, in a Toyota Land Cruiser from London to Mali. Um, he's led the development of rural medical clinics in Mali, Guinea, and Senegal. His experiences as an expedition medic have a successful ascent of Everest's slightly more unusual at 7,050 meters and a recent summit of Kilimanjaro. He's a teaching faculty member for World Extreme Medicine and president for the Simeon Mountains mobile medical service a charity offering medical care to the inhabitants of Ethiopia's remote Simeon Mountains alongside his medical pursuits Marcus is a keen skier mountaineer paraglider and long distance swimmer so welcome to the med- w- welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast Marcus uh, so glad to have you and how are you doing today
0: very well, thanks. Uh, I'm pretty warm here as well and I'm looking forward to uh, a bit of paddleboarding later to get out and cool down.
1: Oh, lovely. I'm so jealous. All I've got to look through is a night shift. <laughs> so um, without further ado, let's get into it. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you first got involved in expedition medicine?
0: Yeah, so it's a long way back actually um, and really it's what we what what got me into medicine to start with. Um Back in in year 10, year 9, 10, 11, I can't remember exactly when, um, I remember my parents first starting to ask me what I was going to do with my life um, and then sort of school asking the same. And at the time I was reading a book by Kenneth Kamler, Um, some of you guys listening I'm I'm sure will have come across him. Um, He was a a, a micro hand surgeon in Manhattan but um, joined several Everest expeditions Uh, and was the only doctor on Everest in 96, um, during the the disaster. Um, And he wrote an amazing book called Extreme Survival, detailing this and other exploits around the world as a doctor. And uh, I remember my dad saying, well, you know, if you go off and become a doctor, you'll be able to be paid to go and uh, travel to these cool places and, uh, you know, explore the world. And I thought, that sounds like a fairly sensible plan. And um, yeah, I kind of, just been too lazy to think of an alternative ever since really so um it's always been my you know as I went through medical school in the background as something I wanted to pursue more in the future and it certainly got me through some of those uh slightly more tedious biochemistry lectures and um and things along the way um and yeah throughout medical school I had access to amazing lectures from nurses and doctors returning from MSF um you know trips and obviously consultants returning from afghan and iraq and you know really just try to suck up as much of that as i could and um yeah try to look ahead to the future to when i'd be able to do it and um i was uh lucky enough to sort of join with a group of colleagues or friends at the time who had a had a very similar sort of idea and vision and we refound the Oxford Wilderness Medicine Society which had kind of fallen into um uh yeah nothing had really happened for sort of several years before so we kind of set up the society again and ran a few events and teaching weekends and things so um so yeah long-standing interest and been enough that it has led me to some some really interesting places.
1: Yeah that's actually really cool that you were thinking about expedition medicine from the start in like year 10 or something um whereas most people kind of fall into it after doctor you were right from the get right from the get-go um how can i get paid to go to these cool places and do amazing things become a doctor yeah great idea um love that so you mentioned um so you set up your, your Wild wilderness medicine society refounded it and then i think whilst you were still in medical school you did your elective out in ethiopia um with the Simeon mountains mobile medical services and to really concentrate to get that one out (laughs) a little bit wordy Um, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with them and then you're still involved with them now so what what sort of work do they do
0: yeah absolutely so i you know coming towards the end of medical school active post finals, so sixth year um later i think than, than some other medical schools in the uk um and it was a pretty sort of overwhelming process trying to work out where to go I kind of knew I wanted to go to the mountains, but I kind of had the whole world to choose from, um, and I kind of went through various ideas in my head, and I ended up sort of coming to Ethiopia. I was chatting with a friend um, who was a PhD student, a Canadian PhD student um, in Oxford, and I said, kind of threw the, my kind of conundrum out to him and said, look, I want a mountain somewhere interesting. um, you know, he said, well, "Well, how about Ethiopia?" And, and actually, he was doing his his PhD. He'd done a lot of research um, previously with mates in Ethiopia. He'd spent, uh, I think, a year in the mountains uh, of Ethiopia, following around um, a troop of um, baboons. I think they were knew all of them by name and things. And he said, "Well, you know, he showed me some photos, and I thought, okay, this this could work." And I actually just googled, you know, ma- medicine, Simeon mountains, and obviously up popped this charity. And it was founded about three or four years before um, I ended up going uh, by a Belgian couple um, who had been trekking in the mountains and, and see just um, how, how how no there was no absolutely no medical facilities really on offer in the remote parts of the mountains, um, and if people wanted to access the clinics there, there were they were walking perhaps for days. Um, and she was she was called Wendy Brian and Wendy. Um, she had worked as midwife before, and so they set up this charity, um, you know, very admirably to try and bridge that that gap. And the charity was based around being a mobile charity, so hence the kind of mobile medical, um, and started with teams of individual nurses um, who would travel by foot or by mule to the remote parts of the Simeon Mountains uh, where you, you you couldn't get a vehicle to. Uh, under any circumstances and they carried everything they could and they treated you know communities as they went they would do two weeks they would do, do a loop um subsequently built a um a clinic um and so yeah I went out for for a couple of weeks um to this incredibly remote clinic four or five hour drive into the mountains from the nearest town and then uh, about a 90 minute walk into the most you know, stunning valley um And yeah, spent kind of a couple of weeks there. Really my first experience of medicine not in the UK and very much without all the things that you get used to practicing and learning as a medical student. Um, Yeah, at times was pretty isolating and and lonely and and sort of mildly terrifying. But um, yeah, really uh, amazing first experience of that kind of working and, you know, yeah, loved it.
1: Wow. Yeah, that does sound really remote. So a four or five hour drive in and then 90 minutes walk to get to this clinic. And I suppose you were the only medical student, um, maybe even the only nearly doctor at that point. Um, Did they have any doctors there or or not yet?
0: No. So the clinic was run by an Ethiopian nurse. Um, uh, The nearest doctors were, yeah, the kind of, you know, five hour drive away in a a place called the um and yeah there's certainly many times uh, while I was there you know didn't feel particularly qualified despite being the kind of foreign almost doctor as you say um you yeah, know really that realization that um yeah wildly out of your depth and um just the extra skills and knowledge that you need not only to to kind of understand the the pathology you're there, but um you know, understand the culture you're working in so I'm not sure I was all that much use um, but I saw it very much as a, a learning opportunity for me to see if I you know I, I never professed that I was going to go there and you know save the clinic or save Ethiopia or do all that much good but um, was able to you know on having left and, and come back I was able to you know, speak to, to the charity to Wendy and Brian and suggest some ideas for how I thought they might be able to improve the clinic and they, you know, very graciously took those on and um, invited me to come on board as as a medical advisor, um, quite whatever whatever that means. Um, but you know, to and I very, you know, very lucky to go back um, the year after and the year after that. So in my F one and F two years, and um, to go back to the clinic and sort of do more training and you know try and uh, bring some of the you know sort of learning and education and things we take for granted in the NHS and, um, and other sort of Western health systems try and sort of tease some of that across. So um been involved ever since. Um, haven't been out for a little while, actually, and obviously, very sadly, uh, that, that part of the world, um, obviously, Ethiopia has been in the grips of, of a civil war um, recently, which, you know, very sadly has affected um, some of our work out there. Um, but, yeah, a very something I'm very proud of. And, um, yeah, really, if you've never been... Uh, would highly recommend a trip to to the Simeon Mountains, absolutely beautiful part of the world.
1: And um, does the charity still accept elective students?
0: It's a bit tricky at the moment. So um, yeah, one of the things I did sort of having got back was thought, well, actually, you know what, Um, I had a fantastic time. Um, It's a, a very you know, it, because it previously it was a, a stable, very safe part of the world. Um, I thought actually there would be lots of people who would want to go back. And I had a couple of medical students in the years below me who'd read my report that I um, obviously had to write for the medical school. Uh, they'd read that and got in touch saying, "Look, you know, could I go?" And so we ended up establishing a, yeah an elective program that at times we had I think sort of eight eight to twelve students a year would go either in groups of, of two or three. Um, and we would have a, they would have a little bit of a routine. They would have some time in the the regional hospital in Dubark, and um, with the with the teams there. And then they would have some times with the mobile nurses, and then times in the clinic. Um, uh, and was fantastic. Got loads of of sort of great feedback from that, and and doctors that had a had a brilliant time out there. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's a bit um, tricky. Although things are a lot calmer, um, and you could safely out there. Um, most medical schools. I'm not sure what your kind of elective approval process was like, but most medical schools are fairly risk averse um, mm-hmm. and anywhere, you know, a hint of sort of trouble. Um, it's a kind of a no-no. So we, we'd be open to sort of getting it started again tentatively, um, but I think it depends a little bit on, on yeah, medical schools.
1: So let's maybe just um, turn a little bit to your next question sort of big adventure which was i think when you were driving from london to mali in a toyota land cruiser and there must have been such an adventure um driving all that way um you must have had some amazing experiences along the way is there anything that sort of stands out
0: yeah it was was brilliant um i kind of got the idea years before i'd after ethiopia i'd spent a little bit of time uh when i had a bit of a holiday in namibia with a friend as part of my elective um and we'd come across you know these group these often couples driving cairo to cape town london to cape town and you know suddenly had this realization that could be done i'd never sort of heard about it before and it always then been in the back of my mind um in F two, I ended up buying a cruiser, kind of with a vague notion that in the future I might do something. Um, and then I I got this job in in Mali in southern Mali with with Critical Care International, and I ended up um, yeah realizing that maybe it was possible and doing a bit of research and to work out you know was it yeah was it at, was it complete suicide um, or, or were the borders open and and had people done it and there was various blogs out there of of people that had done it in the in the previous. Few um, and yeah, so, uh, sort of plan, plan, I did a rotation in Mali and I, I thought, okay, the next one I'll, I'll drive, drive to work. I coined it my overland commute. Um, <laughs> and I was looking for someone to join me. Um, no one seemed to be free. Um, and so eventually my dad stepped in. Um, so me and my dad had, uh, six weeks yeah, driving down, um, through France, Spain, crossing to Morocco, down through Western Sahara, mauritania and then crossed into senegal uh and then drove from, Sen- from senegal into guinea drove right across guinea from from west to east um and uh, and popped into mali uh drove to the mine where i worked uh had a couple of nights there and then yeah dropped my dad back in um, bamako and he flew home wow and then i spent two months working
1: what a bonding experience for you and your dad to go through that's awesome and how long did it take you
0: so it took us six weeks on the way down. Um, I had roughly kind of um, you know six to eight weeks before between rotations. Um, so I'd flown home. we sort of finished off getting the getting the Land Cruiser sorted. Had six weeks sort of coming down the scenic route, uh, and the plan was then to import the the Land Cruiser to Mali, or sort of temporarily import it, so I could keep it in Mali, and rather than flying home after my rotations. I would then explore West Africa, um, you, you, you know, during my breaks. It all became a bit tricky um, and ended up thinking, you know, I'm not going to be able to get this sorted um, and then I'm going to have the vehicle sort of impounded or sort of seized from me. So I thought, well, okay, let's just drive it home. So rather than taking the scenic route home, I drove essentially straight through the Sahara, drove back up to back up to Bamako from, from southern Mali, almost sort of due west, hit the Mauritanian border and then had two days driving straight through the Sahara, endless thousands of kilometers of, of sand and nothingness um driving kind of 18 19 hours a day um before Ooh. I got back to civilization in um in Nouakchott the uh, the capital of Mauritania and from then on it was a it was a bit of an easier route back home but I managed to get home in I think it was about 11 days I got home so lots of driving um, wow. and very nice to be back
1: that is a lot um my uh my grandmother used to tell us stories about um she, worked as a teacher in Sierra Leone and she drove uh, as a woman on her own all the way there and all the way back, back in, um must have been like the 1950s or something like this, post, post-war, no, it might have been before, anyway. Um, but she, uh, when she drove through the Sahara, she told the story about um, waking up with uh, a lioness on her bonnet. <laughs> yeah. Goodness me. Yeah. Apparently it was very friendly. She just had to sit there and it just wandered off on its own after a while. But yeah, um, I'm sure you had some some good encounters along the way as well. So you luckily you found nothing yourself... that close. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> you found yourself in Mali, ready to start your next job working in a um, a Malian mine, right? And it, they're mining gold out there. Is that right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the um, the West African gold belt kind of follows the Malian border. Um, so you've got quite a lot of gold mining. Um, sort of follow, yeah, very much southern Mali, the Malians of, of Ma- and Malians and other sort of tribal groups in, in that region of West Africa have mined gold for Malay. Um, so the richest man to ever live or the richest person to ever live um, was the, the king of Mali, King Musa, um, who is said to have you know, crashed the world economy when he um, uh, marched to Mecca, um, on a pilgrimage because he sold and gave away, gave away so much gold on the way and he was followed by kind of thousands of camels and thousands of men each carrying 20 kilos of gold kind of volumes you just can't imagine but so the whole you know that whole region, yeah to this day you've got not only commercial mining operations uh, but also you know what we call artisanal sort of local mm-hmm. small scale mining so um, yeah young men, local men digging shafts by um and and uh, digging out gold and, and purifying gold so um yeah a fascinating place to work and um yeah your place and, I spent, um, ended up spending three years
1: what was your role out there what were you doing
0: so i worked for a company called critical care international who were commissioned by the mining companies so we work generally with you know, British or Australian or, or Canadian mining companies um, and they were setting up and running um, gold mines in, in Mali and we would pro- provided the healthcare for their, for their workers. So we were setting up clinics to provide kind of what I thought of as sort of comprehensive healthcare. So most of it uh, primary care, you know, just Seeing patients when they were unwell, uh, also there for um, emergency response. So we had an ambulance, and we were able to respond. You know, both pre-hospitally, um, or patients were brought to us for sort um, of initial resuscitation and stabilisation, um, and then also primary evacuation. So getting patients from, say, the mine um, to um, uh, to the capital, where they might then either be treated there or, or evacuated out the country.
1: So a real mixture there of sort of GP plus pre-hospital plus emergency medicine. And um, I imagine you're seeing quite a varied sort of pathology amongst the population as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So mainly uh, kind of young Malian men. Um, Many of the mines now do have a a much increased uh, population of women compared to, say, gold mining operations 10, 20 years ago. Um, So probably when I left the first mine, I set the clinic up. When I left there, there's probably percent women, women, um, but generally young, fit people. Um, and yeah, everything from you know, traumatic injuries, motorcycle injuries, um, through to uh, you know, chronic disease management. And then the kind of the uh, the sort of end result of, of chronic diseases, which you just don't see in the UK. So I, th- I think he had about a 36-year-old chap who'd had a hemorrhagic stroke stroke secondary to hypertension um so wow. you know running a blood pressure over 200 for you know for years um and yeah presented you know aphasic and um hemiplegic so um lots of that kind of measurement. marley's got the second highest rate of hypertension in the world so an awful lot of that um and then you know a huge range of infectious diseases um that are obviously you know never really come across before
1: anything that stands out in your mind is really interesting you saw whilst you were there
0: yeah i've got a got a couple um uh so i think the really the, the the first one is probably one of the first cases i ever saw um and although i can't i don't have a sort of a the patient in my mind like i do for some of the others it's that kind of first malaria case um you know never seen malaria before i knew i was going to see it i'd read the who guidance you know kind of i knew it all in my head but you know, when you see someone coming in, you know, a bit of fever, achy joints, um, you know, it just is that kind of com- completely new pathology that you've never seen. And really, uh, I remember just thinking, I remember turning to, to the doctor I worked with um, and he'd been sort of running a very small clinic um, at the mine before we got there. There was a small kind of exploration site, so they'd they'd been exploring for gold and then I arrived at the point where they were going to build this gold mine. so I worked very closely with Dr. Didier throughout my my time there um, and I remember just sort of turning to him to say kind of you know what what do we do and um you know he'd seen thousands of malaria cases his his whole life uh, working um uh, in cameroon and, and Mali um and so really just you know an awful lot of learning from him and although I was there kind of as his boss and um you know. I was trying to, you know, coax the clinic into, you know, more you know, British practice, you know, not, you, you know, um, actually, I, I learned an awful lot from him. So, um, so yeah, the first malaria case, and then probably seen a, a few thousand beyond then. Um, and then early on as well, I think I had a, we did a lot of community work. So although we were looking after the patients, um to really look after sorry the workers of the mine they were our patients um we did a lot of work in the community in the the, the villages surrounding the mine um supporting the the national health care system so the local nurse-run clinics we did weekly teaching lots of support there um and they because we, we we got to know them they'd often call us for advice on cases or ask us to come and see people and i remember i think it was one saturday morning um Dr. Didier came in and said, oh, we've, you know, could we go and see a baby image um, just down the road and kind of got there and this baby had been born overnight and had a very obvious, um, you know, myelo, seal, so a, a sort of fluid-filled, um, sort of flaccid sac at, at the base of, of his spinal cord um, and, you know, some clear sort of lower limb sort of pathology, so, um, you know, flaccid lower limbs. Um, and um, I remember sort of thinking, oh, my, okay, I'm way out of my depth here. Um, but I suspect they probably need, a, you know, a pediatric neurosurgeon. Why don't we have a think about um, how we can get them get them up to, to Bamako? You know, would we be able to help support the family getting up to Bamako to, to see a pediatric neurosurgeon and, and make a plan? And Didier sort of seemed a little sort of confused. And I sort of, not confused, but I could realize we weren't quite on the same page here. And I said, oh, you know, Should we step outside and and sort of have a chat? And he said, "Oh no, no, um, you know the the family will the family will probably you know give the baby some some poisonous leaves and you know and I kind of you know this sort of pieces are sort of slightly falling into place." I said, "Really, you know?" And he said, "Yeah, the you know the baby's been born with the devil inside it, um, you know it will bring shame on the family kind of kind of thing." And um, just that realization of you know I'm practicing living in a place which yeah, the uh, cultural, culture, and cultural norms, and um, you know the things that surround and underpin your medical practice are so far beyond anything I'd considered. Um, was it was a real shock, and I, you know, I think anyone who's worked in, in similar places will will have some of those cases again and again. So we ended up, you know, had a long chat with the family around explaining, you know, what had happened, you know, from medical point to view and that you know we we then had a chat to, to a, a pediatric surgeon in Bamako and you know we ended up supporting them getting them to Bamako and and so the baby you know, didn't wasn't wasn't harmed and um yeah got them up to Bamako I'm not sure what happened beyond that but um yeah I am um, quite a what an interesting more Saturday morning. Wow. Put it. Put it. That yeah, and way, I can yeah. picture
1: you all sort of sat there having a conversation, and I bet they're looking at you like you're the crazy one. Like, yeah, like, of course, of course, the devil inside this child. You know, we cannot keep it. Um, yeah, and you're sort of yeah. probably feeling quite isolated at that point. But um, yes, it's 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 yeah. mad, isn't it? It's really interesting to experience the different cultural norms, and that's part of, I guess, what makes expedition medicine really, really fascinating. Um, I saw quite yeah. a lot of um, like like shaman practices in uh, the jungle in Amazon uh, in in the Amazon jungle. They uh, spent my elective out there, and we'd often get patients who'd say, "Oh yes, I've I've been to the shaman, or I've been to the witch doctor, and they say I have a you know a, a devil inside me or something like this." And so they rubbed tree bark on my stomach, and it's not helped. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. okay, right, let's uh, let's let's go back to the start here. But often as well can be quite harmful what they do. Um can can be quite um yeah, it, it can make things a lot worse as well.
0: We but yeah, they, we've had some couple of very one that springs to mind, yeah, very sad case of um uh, a worker with a, a neck, a neck lump, a neck mass. I, I didn't see them myself, um, seen by a colleague um, you know, pl- planned sort of non urgently to to refer um, to, to the capital, so you know, get the butt to the capital, and um, be seen in, in in a private clinic for an ultrasound and see an ENT surgeon. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, kind of in the meantime, went to see a private went to see a private shaman, <laughs> private, you know, uh, um yeah, the, a community healer, um, who decided, yeah, we better better try and cut this out, and um, and yeah, ended up putting a putting a knife through the carotid artery. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so yeah, I think the You've, you, we didn't do. We did a li- we did a little bit of work with with the sort of community leaders as part of um, uh, sort of health needs assessment. So as mm-hmm. we did a, a large um, health needs assessment in the area to understand not only kind of where the community wanted their um, where they wanted their sort of resources spent, where they felt the issues were, but also to try and get some baseline data on where the health challenges were and as part of that um the community healers were kind of involved and and things and I've heard some uh I'm trying to think where I think I was at a at a um All Society of Um uh, Medicine Tropical Medicine Hygiene in London at a conference. I remember listening to a presentation by a, a team researching buruli ulcer in in Central Africa. Um, and what they did was worked very closely with the community healers to say, look, we're not going to influence what you do. Um, but if you see you know, something consistent with the Borule ulcer, you do your treatment for two weeks or a month. Um, but if it's not healed at that point, could you please refer into this service um, and then we will see what we think kind of thing. It was very... You know, very much that we're not stepping on your toes you crack on but if you're not having any luck here's your out as a clinician um, and so they are this steady stream of referrals um which they would never have come across because they had no no way of ac- accessing those patients so um so yeah uh, you got to build build those kind of people into your thinking haven't you
1: definitely yeah that collaborative working strategy and um really involving the- not just kind of imposing what you think they need on them rather than uh, asking them what do they need or how yeah. do they want their resources spent as you said yeah that must have been a you know fascinating kind of um process to go through whilst you're out there in mali um yeah. so i think you were out there for about three years or so weren't you uh, and then came back um and went on another adventure uh so you subsequently admitted to me that it was a, a Guinness World Record attempt for the highest black tie dinner in the world, um, which happened to be on the north coal of Everest. Um, so sounds fascinating. How did you get involved with that?
0: Yeah. Um, so one of uh, the team in Mali had, uh, one of the doctors I worked with had summited Everest himself some years before and was obviously, you know, well-versed and immersed in in your sort of high altitude mountaineering world and mentioned at the point that a an old um colleague of his was was planning this expedition and um he, he put me in touch if i fancied it and clearly i said yes who wouldn't um and yeah i i went to had had um a dinner actually with um neil lawton um who is a uh wide-ranging explorer and adventurer he's just had a book come out actually um if you want to read all about him and um, he's done some amazing stuff around the world um and he was running this expedition um to the to the north side of Everest to try and break this record and they had been there um a couple of years before when the whole expedition sort of got shut down because of the earthquake um and they were going back um And we had dinner and a chat around whether I might want to join as the exhibition doctor. Um, And he was a bit sort of hesitant. I hadn't been that high before um, or anywhere near that high. Um, And we kind of ended up agreeing that they were going to take another doctor instead who'd been there before. But that, you know, um, he he, keep me in mind. So I kind of I, I sort of got very excited about it, and then and then sort of put the idea to bed. Um, and a, about two months before the trip, I got a, a sort of a fairly urgent call. You know, the doctor's dropped out. Any chance you're around? And I was able to um, move around my my date city um, and join them for, for for two months out there. Um, and yeah, there was a group of a um, group of about ten of us that went up to the North Pole um and another 10 who joined for base camp um and yeah the plan was to to get up to the north col at 7050 metres and have this three course michelin star black tie dinner party with champagne and and, and whiskey um and were successful in that so i do have a um I do have a guinness world record i never thought i never thought when i was reading the kenneth camler book about his trip to everest that i'd be sat in a a bow tie and uh, and, a, and a tuxedo at, at seven thousand, but um, it was quite an experience. Met some amazing people, and um, yeah, just obviously an absolutely stunning part of the world, albeit slightly inhospitable at times.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I've, I mean, I've got questions about how the layering system worked with a black tie as well. How do you, do you go down jacket underneath the suit or over, or how, how does that work? <laughs>
0: So, yeah, you, you very much have the down jacket over the top. The, uh, the people who were the most incredible were um, two of the girls on the trip um, who actually had full-length ball gowns on um, and at one point stripped, stripped down jackets off to, uh, to get a photo. Um, so, yeah, wow. they, were, they were very impressive. Um, I was slightly more wrapped up, sort of m- multiple layers of thermals, um, then, uh, then get the shirt on and then get the bow eye on and um, have it underneath a huge, uh, huge Tom Parker.
1: Yeah. Wow. And um, to have a sort of, yeah, like Michelin star dinner and whiskey and the whole shebang up there, you know, what an experience. That's incredible. Um, any, any sort of medical excitement for you up there?
0: No, thankfully not. Um, we were very lucky in, in, in that respect that I didn't have to sort of intervene too much. Uh, my main sort of takeaway was, really just um i think as a doctor and or as a healthcare professional of any type really your early years of practice are there to Sort of develop the skills whereby you you can understand who is sick and who is not. I mean, as an any doctor, this is your kind of bread and butter, um, and a little bit as a GP. Occasionally, you get people sort of sort of stagger into your consulting room who you think, "Oh Lord, <laughs> you really ought to not be here. You ought to be in hospital on the way to hospital," um, and to so that kind of immediate triage, um, which you just don't have at seven thousand meters or, or even six thousand. You know, you look around the table at dinner um when we're all sort of dressed in our you know drags not a, not a, not our black tie and you know he looks awful she looks terrible he's coughing i feel awful all our sats are in the 60s maybe a touch higher maybe a touch lower you know who of those are sick um you know when i was when i was up up at that night at 7000 yeah felt awful pretty sure i didn't sleep um you know where where's the line between kind of normal and um pathology is is sort of quite quite tricky and um so often lots of that sort of just you know keeping in touch with everyone as you climb climb higher working out who's doing well who's doing not and then lots of you know really lots of non-medical management of everyone I mean having l- listened to your your tales from Kilimanjaro something you know you guys were doing we're doing up there but you know making people stop and put on more gear you know I was climbing with people who you know, done an awful lot in the mountains. Um but sometimes, you know, if you've got a bit cold, you're a bit hungry. I remember one day we were we were walking up the rombuk glacier, um, up towards kind of advanced base camp about six thousand five hundred. And um long day, I everyone's pretty, pretty tired. And uh, a couple of people, you know, started to get a bit cold. The snow came in, they weren't wearing that much because we were walking, you know, obviously uphill. And actually just had to stop everyone and say, look, we're going to stop. We're going to have a hot drink. We're going to have something to eat. We're going to put more clothes on um, because I can see you're getting cold. Um, and just managing people in that way and, and just making sure that, you know, you understand how people are feeling early on, um, you know, getting on top of things before they come. But, but yeah, I was amazed. You know, really the the, the main takeaway was that it's it's often not the medical stuff. It's the other things. It's looking after yourself. Yeah, we're going to stop at this point, we're going to all drink. If you've run out of water, who has some more? Managing the group in a way that that perhaps um, I would never have thought was going to happen.
1: I think that's a really interesting part of expedition medicine is that you are sort of in a bit of a leadership position as a medic. Um, And you do need to have some recognition of group dynamics and you need to be quite observant, you need to kind of understand people um and you need to have a range of techniques that you can deploy to subtly manipulate them to do what you want them to
0: <laughs> absolutely
1: in, in a very benevolent way not <laughs> in, for their best interests <laughs> yeah um, absolutely. yeah definitely
0: but you also find yourself I, I'm sure you found this as well on, on Kilimanjaro being called on you sort of you can see the kind of the Sherpa team the, the guides sort of You know, we had one chap who um, didn't end up joining us on the North Coal, was just sort of struggling a bit more than everyone else. And you can see the sort of the Sherpas sort of having a chat around, you know, whether he should go on and actually then sort of turning to us, you know, turning to me as the doctor, sometimes wanting us to make that decision for them, you know, obviously. Um, And so being very cognizant, yeah, of, you know, people's dreams of either summiting or you know getting high for obviously on this trip for the Guinness World Record but uh, realizing that actually sometimes yeah you do either have to make a decision that some people won't like um or as you say um yeah usher people towards doing something that probably when they look back will be um in their best interests
1: yeah certainly So, just to kind of bring this all to a close, um, did you have any sort of final thoughts on um, any any fascinating bits of your career that you've done so far? So, all the way from Simeon Mountains in Ethiopia to Mali, Senegal, Guinea, um, working in the not working in the mines, working for the mines, and uh, up to Everest North Coal. Any other final thoughts or experiences you want to share?
0: Yeah, um, I think if we go all the way back to the start, and I think. I've been very, very lucky to be able to experience the things I have. And I think we are at a point in in kind of wilderness expedition, medicine, extreme medicine, whereby this doesn't really happen by chance. Um, Yes, obviously, you know, a, a friend kindly put me in touch with someone who was going on a trip to Everest. But the days of, you know, Kenneth Kamler, you know, good mate at the pub, you know, who was an Everest climber, why don't you come and join me? They're long gone and really what we're in is a, you know, I think of it as kind of a meritocracy. You know, if you want to go and do these cool things, if you, you know, are a competent doctor and have got the skills and you can spend safely in the mountains, you know, you can go and do them. And so I think the most motivating thing throughout my career has been that if you want to do it, you can and and put the time in to, to learn the skill set and all the way through from, um, I often tell people, um, you know, sometimes go and, and as you will do, sort of lecture at, at medical schools or you know try and deliver a few humorous tales at a at a medical school, um, you know, Wilderness Society. And I remember very clearly early on, sort of how demoralised was, sort of you know, sat in those biochemistry lectures or um, you know on those ward rounds. Um, but actually, those core skills that you learn back then are the ones that you're going to employ on Everest or in in Ethiopia and you know aside from the kind of you know the 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 infectious disease and things in Ethiopia everyone had reflux because they drank so much coffee and so everyone would come you know tens of consultations a day with with reflux Um, and actually if you're going to go and it's different somewhere having a real sort of grounding in those in those things is is obviously crucial so yeah, getting the basics right and then all the way through to kind of stuff that you're never going to see in the UK um, and that sometimes you do just have to read and and, and remember what to do and remember early on in in Mali um, I strolled off from the clinic some lunch and um, I, I sort of as I was strolling along, a South African chap kind of came alongside me, um, nice guy that I sort of have a have a beer with in the evening sometimes. And he had a little, he's carrying a little cardboard box. And uh, I said, "Oh, um, what's in there?" He said, "Oh, a snake." And I kind of hungry, didn't think much of it. He popped this box outside the outside the canteen, sat down with my lunch, and um, about ten minutes later, sort of screams from outside. You know, snake! The snake! The snake's got him! Um, sort of ran out to find. This chap sort of rolling around on the floor outside his accommodation. Um, turns out he'd he picked up this snake. He loved snakes and he would sort of he would always catch them if they were, you know, too close for comfort in camp. But he caught this snake and he popped it in the box and he'd had a bit of his lunch and he thought, oh, I'll just see how the snakes do, and I'll get a couple of photos to send to my snake-obsessed friends. And he <laughs> just popped the little edge of this box open and tried to pop his camera in, and this snake had this Marley spitting cobra had popped his head up, aimed, and perfectly hit him in both eyes. Um, and he was rolling around, you know, screaming. And I, I um, ended up pinning his head between my legs, sort of on my knees, and I held each eye open while he screamed louder and louder, one by one, pouring, I dread to think, liters of water, um, bottled water into his eyes, um, until I thought, okay, how long's enough? You know, we've been here. I'm sure now he's screaming more because of what I'm doing than the pain. Um, so eventually sort of let him get up and, uh, okay, thought, what do we do next? Had a chat with my boss and thought, okay, not quite sure what the, you know, long-term side effects would be, but I think sensible to see an ophthalmologist in um, in Bamako, in the capital, to make sure he hadn't got a sort of significant corneal damage. Um, so agreed, had a chat with a ophthalmologist get a car, could drive in the six, seven hours to Bamako, I thought probably worth us doing that day. And um, eventually had to persuade him that this was a sensible thing to do. Um, got him into the car and we were just sort of getting him in the car and he said, oh, hold on, hold on, just ran off. And I thought, oh, he's going to refuse to go now. And he ran off and he ran off to his room and he this cardboard box still with this spitting cobra oh. inside. And he carried it back to the car, and he sat on the, he got in the passenger seat, and he sat with this cardboard box in his lap. And I thought, you know, what Why on earth are you doing? He said, snake and he, with him." Exactly, you know, And he said, "I'll let it go twenty k's down the road, so it doesn't come to any harm."
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! So wow.
0: Yeah. So some some completely crazy cases like that that obviously you never have imagined I'll have come across um, in my career, but um, yeah, I couldn't look back now and have a, have a bit of a laugh.
1: I mean, and his eyes interest. were fine, by the way. Yeah, I was going to ask, did he have any corneal injuries or anything like that? Were they fine? Yeah.
0: No, they were fine when he had a look. Um, I've obviously lost touch with him now, but um, yeah, we kind of kept a bit of an eye on him over the next few months and yeah, his mm. eyes had, were, were fine. Um, so, I, but I think really the, my understanding, I, I'm, I'm no snake expert, um, but I think it's, it's kind of contact time. So, you know, the um the cytotoxic venom in the eyes left for you know x period of time you know will completely destroy your eyes yeah um, you know it just happened that i was there literally sort of minutes later immediately started uh, um washing Forcifully his eyes out quite vigorously <laughs> forcefully irrigating exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and i think you know managed to obviously get enough out so that it, it didn't didn't um have too much of an effect, so um, a successful a successful case, if you will, but and I ended up finishing off my lunch a couple of hours later.
1: <laughs> wow, well, that's definitely one that's going to go down well at the medical schools when you're doing the circuit, and I'm sure the <laughs> listeners are going to love that too um and uh yeah like like just going back to what you were saying before it just occurred to me to say you know there's probably quite a lot of medical students that listen to the podcast as well and it's probably quite encouraging to hear that you know you can go out and do this cool stuff and that your biochemistry lecture is uh you know just a means to an end to getting you to a point where you're in Mali with a guy's head between your legs forcibly irrigating his eyes from a spitting cobra venom so um yeah just remember that next time you're in some boring lecture and you can't remember why you're doing this
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Um, any uh, so so you're obviously joining us on the podcast, and um, I think you've got a few guests lined up already. But can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek or a little bit of a sneak preview on what what you might have lined up for the podcast?
0: Oh um, yeah, so I've I've interviewed uh, or I've recorded a podcast um, in, over the, in the last few weeks with um, a friend and colleague who I worked with in in Mali. Uh, around sailing medicine. So, you know, touching on, you know, what you do when something goes wrong in the middle of the the Southern Ocean, days from from help. Uh, I've got another colleague who again worked within West Africa, but but prior to that spent um, about six months in uh, South Sudan as the second doctor covering an area of sort of several million people who's got some absolutely incredible Tales um, and and lived a a pretty fascinating life, Um, and then perhaps a uh, a friend or or um, someone from from the military I know who's uh, um, been a GP in the military. And while I was off, sort of in West Africa in Mali, um, you know, had a fascinating post F two pre GP training time um, in in the military. Um, And then if I can find someone, perhaps a little exploration I do, moment in the um, Scottish Highlands as an urgent care and out of hours doctor, um, kind of covering remote areas of the Highlands overnight and at weekends. Um, and actually some of the Highlands and Islands work um, in Scotland is is fascinating. You, you know, doctors covering um, sort of small A&Es and, and, and GP clinics, perhaps the only doctor on the island. Um, so I'd be really keen to, uh, yeah, find someone with some, some fascinating tales, perhaps from a few decades of work um, in remote parts of the uk to to bring to the podcast so yeah fingers yeah. crossed um managed to get those people on over the next few months
1: fantastic looking forward to hearing it and um if there is anybody listening who maybe thinks they fit that bill of you know remote thailand out of hours gp um with, with some experience that maybe wants to get in touch um get in touch via the social media or via the when website and it goes for anybody else who thinks they've got some Some good stories or some good experiences to share um once you come on the podcast please do get in touch we're always looking for guests and um we look forward to hearing your next podcast coming out over the next few months marcus thank you so much for joining me and having a bit of a chat and um enjoy the rest of your day and your paddle boarding i'm so jealous (laughs)
0: thank you can't wait it's quite warm in here so i'm looking forward to getting outside and i imagine falling off into the river at some point but it's been lovely to chat um thank you so much for having me
1: thanks for listening to the episode please feel free to rate review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to please also head over to the world extreme medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network including humanitarian disaster relief expedition space military tactical and performance medicine thanks again